I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Tyrus. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. I'm Trey Yinks. Many people are experiencing burnout at work amid the coronavirus outbreak. One of the biggest challenges is that we no longer have the boundaries between work and everyday life. And so many people found themselves working all the time and experiencing burnout. And burnout is what happens when the demands of our work consistently exceeds the amount of energy we have available. This is the Fox News Rundown, Evening Edition. A recent survey said 77% of people experienced burnout at their jobs at some point during the pandemic. With many returning to the office, it's adding a new layer of stress for those preparing to change environments. Doctors and psychologists are now studying how to approach the issue and help employees be more productive in the workplace. Well, from a workplace perspective, one of the biggest challenges is that we no longer have the boundaries between work and everyday life. For more on this story, this is Dr. Ron Friedman, the author of Decoding Greatness. And so many people found themselves working all the time and experiencing burnout. And burnout is what happens when the demands of our work consistently exceeds the amount of energy we have available. And so there are two ways that we can alleviate burnout. And that's kind of become my focus, which is that one of those ways is to reduce the demands of your work, which is for many people really, really hard to do. The alternative is to increase the amount of energy we have available. And that turns out to be a far better approach. In terms of your research and what it's focused on, what did you look at over the past year and what were you surprised to learn? Well, one of the things I've been focused on is how people can learn faster. And that's a critical skill to have because it used to be the case that if you wanted to get ahead at work, you needed to learn new skills and stay on top of new trends. But now that's a basic requirement for staying relevant. And so my research has looked at how the best in the world learn everything faster. And it's the subject of my new book, Decoding Greatness. And what I found is that the stories we've been told about success are wrong. There are two basic stories that we've been told about how people achieve great things. The first story is that greatness comes from talent. This is the idea that we all have certain strengths and that the key to finding your greatness is just finding the right field that allows your talent to shine. The second story is that greatness comes from practice. It's the idea that if you just practice hard enough, eventually you'll succeed. But there's a third story, and it's particularly relevant to people in knowledge work. If you're someone who works in a, in a field where you need to solve problems, you're more likely to succeed not through talent or practice, but by reverse engineering. And that simply means finding the best in your field and then working backward to figure out how they did it. That turns out to be the path by which Malcolm Gladwell became a great writer, uh, Claude Monet became a great artist, and even Steve Jobs figured out how to break into the, uh, to, to, to the technology industry. So reverse engineering turns out to be by far the most common way by which people succeed in knowledge fields. In terms of meeting face-to-face and the opportunities that people will have now that many workplaces are bringing their employees back into the office, I think back to the book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and this idea of understanding who you're talking to, basically knowing what someone wants to talk about, and oftentimes that's themselves. They want to basically view the world the way they see it and and through their own eyes. So when you're in a workplace and you're looking to be successful and and have that top level of performance, it's important to understand who you're interacting with and basically be able to see the world through their eyes. How does all of this play into the idea of not only being productive at work, but also avoiding burnout? 
it, because people well, are, are just I, constantly trying to, to please everyone. And then I imagine there's more pressure now on people as they head back to the workplace. Yeah. You know, one of the basic, this is what's really critical is to look at the psychological needs that people have and, and their impact on people's productivity and performance. And so when we think about productivity, we think about, you know, putting, putting your, your nose to the grindstone, putting in a lot of effort, but we all have basic human psychological needs. And to the extent that we have those psychological needs fulfilled, we're going to be healthier, happier, and more productive. So those three psychological needs come down to feeling like you're competent at your job, feeling good at what you do, having some autonomy. So meaning you have some say in how you go about doing your job. And the third need, and this is the one that gets overlooked by so many workplaces, is the need for human connection. So feeling like you're respected, valued, and appreciated by other people. That turns out to be impactful, not just for the way we feel at work, but how productive we are. And it's because if you feel like you don't have those close relationships, so much of your mental bandwidth is going to go to whether or not people respect you or value you and not actually doing your job. And so this is why in, in my first book, The Best Place to Work, I argue that workplaces need to pay so much more attention to the relationships that people have because it's in investing in those relationships that you have not just better workers but more loyal workers because they're less likely to leave the organization. What sort of advice or knowledge stands out in Decoding Greatness that you think people will really take away from this book, especially when it comes to the way we interact at work and also if they're not having those needs met in their workplace, what advice do you give to people? Well, okay, so there's a couple of questions there. And the, fir the first thing I would say is about Decoding Greatness is that um, the, the, what I hope that people take away is that if you've assumed that you can't achieve great things because you don't have the talent or because you don't have the patience to work at something for 10,000 hours, I want to dispel that myth. You don't need to do that. There's a faster way to learn from the best in the world, and it's by working backwards to figure out what they did differently than everyone else. And it is a remarkable tool that you can apply to writing better emails and a tool that you can use to create better uh, speeches and TED Talks, all kinds of things. And it's highly, highly applicable to everyday life. And if you look at the work that creative superstars uh, uh, generate, what they do consistently is that they are constantly learning from the best and they're evaluating by comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary. And so I'll make this practical. Let's say you want to get better at writing emails. Here's what I would recommend. Collect some emails that you've received from other people that you have found to be either very well written or moving in some way. And then keep them in, in, a, in a file that you can then compare them to average emails, emails that weren't quite as impressive, and then look for differences. So it's kind of like spot the difference, like the game we used to play as kids where we compared two images to see what was different. That's what you want to do with the well-written emails against the non-well-written well -written emails. And by doing that, by do, asking yourself consistently, how, you know, what's different here? How do I learn from this? What can I apply to my job? Not only will you improve your ability to write better emails, but you're also more, uh, more likely to inoculate yourself from the impact of burnout because you're learning something new. You've been listening to Dr. Ron Friedman, the author of Decoding Greatness. We'll be right back. How do you get people to consume and accept this information? Because we're taught over and over again, you want to be original, you want to be the first of your kind in your field, but it seems as if what you're arguing here is it's important to look at those who have been successful in any individual field and learn from them. Without question. And, you know, one of the things I found while doing the research for Decoding Greatness is that the people who aim for complete originality, they're the ones who are li more likely to fail. And it's because as a species, we are distrustful of the new. 
and when a leader at our workplace suggests a creative idea, not only are we less likely to accept that idea if it's very, very original, but we're also likely to punish that leader by viewing them as having weaker leadership skills. And it's because what we expect from leaders is we expect um, them to build our confidence and to be consistent. And so when a leader suggests a creative idea, we don't view them quite as much of a leader as, as we think they would. And so what that suggests is that people who get promoted within organizations are actually not the, the most creative people. They're the ones who are more likely to be conservative and take the safest path, which says something about organizations. And, and I think that what the key takeaway here is that when you aim for complete originality, you're not going to succeed. The better approach is to find examples that work, figure out why they're working, and then think about how do I apply this to my work by adding just a little bit of novelty that makes it my own. We're taught so often that those at the top have taken immense risk and they have really gambled their entire careers oftentimes to get to where they're at. But you're also right that this isn't necessarily the case. Tell me about this. Yeah, so we are taught that we should take a lot of risks. But when you look at what organizations do, organizations actually very rarely take I mean, they, they actually are, are, they take risks in a way that, that doesn't have quite as much of a cost if they fail. So a great example of this is the work of comedians. If you think about how comedians test their jokes before uh, in, in tiny, tiny uh, com- comedy clubs before they go to a big Netflix special. So Aziz Ansari is someone I cover in Decoding Greatness. He's someone who goes to comedy clubs, runs his material by a small group. If it doesn't work out, okay, uh, he, he moves on to the next show. But if it does work out, then that joke gets moved to his comedy special. But it's not just comedians who do this. Politicians do the same thing by testing phrases and slogans and small gatherings. Authors do this by testing blog posts before they commit to writing a book. And entrepreneurs do it all the time by pitching a a handful of clients a new idea before they put it on their website. And so the goal here is not just to put yourself on the line and try something risky, but rather find an intelligent way of testing it with a small group. And that's the way that individuals can use that uh, that approach in the same way that organizations do. You also write about practice and the traditional thinking about getting better at any skill and how repetition, we're taught, makes you better. And especially in the workplace, this would ultimately take you where you want to be professionally. What are some of the downsides of over-practicing and sort of operating in a way that you, you feel like you have to just take a skill and do it over and over again until you are perfect. Yeah. Our definition of practice is far too limited. So most people, when they think of practice, they think about practicing in the present tense, meaning right now I'm going to go and do this skill over and over again. But there's actually two other ways that we can practice. This is what athletes do to improve that we also need to incorporate into our definition of practice. And so one, uh, so there's practicing in the past, and there's practicing in the future. That's something people don't do. So what do I mean by practicing in the past? What I mean by practicing in the past is reviewing your past performance for new learnings. And you can do that simply by journaling, simply writing in a few sentences every day to, to reflect on what it is that you learned that day. And there's research showing that simply reflecting on what you learned that day will improve your skills by 23%. Um, because it's by comparing what you expected against what happened, that's how you turn new information into wisdom. Practicing in the future is visualizing. So in your case, for example, Trey, we could talk about how you do your reporting. 
if you go into a, a, a uh, shooting a clip and you visualize it in advance before you go and do it, you're more likely to be successful and your anxiety will be lower in actually executing your recording. And it's because when you visualize an event before it happens, you front load all of the decisions. And so you're not just reacting to them in real time, you're anticipating what is going to happen and how you will behave. And that also improves your performance. And there's research showing that athletes who visualize actually don't need to physically practice as much as others do. In fact, they can reduce their practice regimen by as much as 50% simply by visualizing. And so there are so many tools that we can use from athletes and incorporate them into knowledge work. And that's the goal of my book. And then my last question has to do with burnout, sort of a bookend to how we started this conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, you have all these ideas and ways to achieve any sort of goal that you, you set out for, whether it's in the workplace or even personally. How do you avoid getting overwhelmed with all of the knowledge there is out there and all of the skills you could learn to go about your work in a more efficient and even better way. You know, we talked about decoding greatness and, and it's focused on reverse engineering. And so reverse engine, one, one way of, of understanding reverse engineering is looking at great examples and figuring out what makes them unique and how you can incorporate that into your own work. But there's another way of interpreting reverse engineering and that's reverse engineering your ideal self. And what I mean by that is taking the time and, and a good time, an opportunity to do this is on vacation where you have a little bit of distance from your the day-to-day bustle uh, of everyday life and, and just thinking about, you know, where do I want to be in five years? And then working backwards to identify what those goals look like. And what, what I think that, that uh, exercise does for you, it, it helps you identify things you should be doing, but more importantly, it helps you identify things you should stop doing. And it's often by reducing the things on our plate that we uh, in, accelerate our success on the things we're actually trying to achieve. And instead of trying to do more and more in less and less time, what we should be doing is doing fewer things better. Psychologist Dr. Ron Friedman, the author of Decoding Greatness. Sir, really interesting conversation and uh, certainly look forward to finishing your book. Thanks. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.